Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, dad. Hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today I'm going to be interviewing the wonderful Beverly Washburn, who's an actor, writer, singer, and I think the most important thing, an animal lover. How are you doing today, Miss Washburn? I'm doing well, Stephen. How are you? And please just call me Beverly. I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> okay, so, fine, I'll, call you, I'll call you Beverly. Okay. And we met recently at the Monster Bash convention that was in October 2021. And one of the things I find fascinating that you brought up is at every convention you go to, the money you raise from photographs and stuff like that, you donate to local animal shelters, correct? Right. I, animals have just always been my passion. And, you know, they have no voice. We're their voice. And there are so many organizations. And I wish I were a millionaire and I could, you know, send thousands of dollars every day. But what happens is, you know, once you get on, um, like, sending to one, all of a sudden you get inundated with every organization across the country. And so what I try to do is I rotate them, you know, depending on if I sell a book or I do a convention or a show or whatever, I'll send to one organization and then the next time the next one because they all need help. They all need money to, you know, keep these little homeless animals going. And uh, I recently adopted a little one um, from the animal shelter here who had been confiscated. And she's, she's the sweetest little Thing. She's almost 13, and she only has three teeth. And when I saw her online and they said she'd been confiscated, I called and asked, what does that mean exactly? And they said, well, we're not at liberty to tell you the reason, but any time an animal gets confiscated, it's never a good story um, because the police get involved, and then they, they go over there, and then they call animal control, and then they take the dog or cat. To a shelter and then they put him up for adoption and it's a whole procedure and here's this little thing judging by the way she looks and her teeth and everything they said she had to be almost 13 so and she's just a little white dog and of course they didn't know her name or anything so I named her Betty White because <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of you know the actress Betty White who is also a huge animal lover and um so anyway, her name is Betty White, and she loves to give kisses, but she doesn't have <laughs> very many teeth, so she gives sideways kisses because her tongue hangs out the side of her mouth. It's so adorable. I remember you showed oh. me a picture of Betty White, your dog Betty White. <laughs> <And Right. laughs> so people don't take this out of context. It's like, oh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with her tongue hanging out the side of her mouth, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> But it, it was the cutest little picture, and you know, I just, I've, I've also gotten dogs from shelters over the over my oh, life, sure. and my family does, and it's just, yeah. it, it's so sad I when know. you see them and they come in and they give them that love, and it, how they open up after like a couple of months, and how they realize they're now in a a safe place. It's so it's so warming. Know. You know, a few of my friends said, "Oh, don't don't adopt an older one because you'll get attached, and then." They'll die, and you'll have vet bills, and on and on. And I said, you know, all those are valid reasons, but I want an older one because they don't, you know, who knows how long they have. And so I just 
made a promise to her that for however long she's here, she'll have, you know, as best a life as I can give her with good food and shelter and a warm bed. And, um, you know, I just, I, I wanted to get an older one because most people, of course, want a puppy because there's nothing cuter in the world than a puppy or a kitten. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, she worked out great because I have uh, two other rescues. I have my dog, Larry, and then I have a cat who's almost 17 uh, in Harriet. So I have my little my little family, and uh, they're adorable. So whenever I do a show and all that, I'm so grateful that it gives me the opportunity to give back. Well, I'm grateful too. And and, and listeners that are listening in, um, it, we're, we're starting off the new year because this will be coming in, tw- in January 2022, and we're recording this in December of 2021. You know, if, if you have extra money and you want to donate, find a shelter that's in your area. I recommend donating to a no-kill shelter myself Absolutely. and help yeah. them out. And if you don't have money, sometimes you can talk to them, and sometimes they'll take old blankets or towels, and th- there's a lot of okay. things that you can help out shelters with. Right, and also a lot of people say, well, I don't have much money. You know, what is $5 going to do? But if you think about it, if, you know, a 1,000 people send in $5, it adds up. So it doesn't matter the amount. It's just anything, even if it's $2, whatever anybody can spare. I know there are hard times right now with families and children and, you know, employment and all that. So it doesn't have to be, you know, $100. It can be $2, whatever it is, just if everybody could do that, it would be so helpful. Oh, I agree. So if, if you're listening to this, you know, feel the urge, go for it, and, and, and try and reach out, see what they need. You can, you never know yeah. what your difference can make. Absolutely. Now, you have had a long career in acting and still are acting, um, unless you just recently retired, to my knowledge. I mean, you're still, your credit list is over 80 credits of acting, TV, movies, um, you name it. You've also released a song and you've written a book. I mean, you, you've done so many different things. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've been blessed. I, I started very young. I started, you know, when I was four years old, modeling children's clothes. And I was six when I did my first movie. And now all these years have <laughs> gone by. I, I did several things as an adult, but mostly as a child. People seem to remember me from episodes of, you know, Wagon Train or Old Yeller probably is the one that I'm most remembered for. Or Star Trek um, is another one that there's so many Trekkies and they're wonderful fans. And then, of course, where I met you at Monster Bash, which is like the best convention in the world, um, you know, it's the horror uh, fans. They're amazing. They just, they're so kind and so appreciative and they just embrace spider baby if that movie lives on and it's <laughs> been around a long time so i'm grateful when people remember spider baby oh yes it has and what got your start i mean you said you started modeling what was it your mom or was it something that you had as when you were growing up your mom you told your mom i want to try this and you and you went into acting no because of i was i was young. My older sister, Audrey, was an acrobat, and my older brother, Georgie, was an actor. He did mostly plays and things. And so my mother got me an agent, and I started just modeling children's clothes. And I went on countless auditions, but I never got the part because I had no experience whatsoever. 
so I just kept um, plugging along and uh you know, I had an agent that would send me out all the time, but as soon as they would find out that I had no experience, I, I just, you know, I can't blame them. I just never got the part. Well, one lucky day, my older sister, Audrey, was performing at the Veterans Hospital in Long Beach, California, and Jock Mahoney was there as the guest of honor. People will remember him. He was the range rider and Yancey Derringer, and he did a lot of films and he was this handsome cowboy wearing you know this really um cool <laughs> cowboy jacket with, that was gold with fringe on it and everything and I was a child I was like six at the time five or six and I just was mesmerized by him and so we met and they asked me to get up on stage and sing a song so I did and that was it and then as fate would have it a few months later, I was on an audition at Columbia Studios and for a part, a speaking role, and uh, Jock Mahoney happened to walk through the lobby because he was under contract there. And he asked my mother what I was doing there, and she told him I was up for a role called, um, it was in a movie called The Killer That Stalked New York with Evelyn Keyes and William Bishop and Dorothy Malone. And so we talked briefly and then he said I'll be right back well what we found out later is that he had gone into the producer and said oh this kid's great she's done this and she's done that and I hadn't done a thing so as the story goes basically he lied and they believed him and I got the part so once I had that one credit under my belt so to speak it was easier because then when I would go on another audition I could say that I had just had a speaking role in a movie at Columbia Studios, and so that's how it kind of progressed from there. Once It's such a catch-22, you know, in the business, because they don't want to give you a part unless you've done something, if you've had experience, but how do you get the experience unless they give you the part, you know? So it's tough for a lot of people that have that dream of becoming an actor, and I just was so blessed that it just unfolded in such a way that, I just got lucky to get that first break. Well, I look at it. You got the luck part to take that first break, but if you think about it, you going up to sing, you must have done a really good job and impressed him. So, in a sense, you know, there's there's part of me that believes you were lucky, but also you also have to take advantage of the opportunities when they show up and have the talent there in order to be able to fulfill that first, you know, impression and stuff like that. So, you can look at it both ways. Yeah, so I just, it was something that I always enjoyed doing, and my parents were very supportive. They never made me do it because, you know, there are a lot of uh, stories about, uh, as you heard, the Hollywood stage mothers who are, I guess they live vicariously through their children because they want them to be in the movies. But unless the child wants to, I just think it's, it's not right. There's an... A story, I'd like to think it's not a true story, but I'm sure you've heard it, about, I, I can't remember now if it was Jackie Coogan or Jackie Cooper, one of the two, and when they were wanting him to cry in a scene, as the story goes, they said the director told them that his dog had just been hit by a car, and that made him cry. And I think, I hope that's not a true story, because that would be a horrible thing to tell a child. And... So 
you know, there's downsides of the business too. And but I was lucky. I was blessed, and I always enjoyed working on the set. And I was too young to really appreciate the roles that I got or the people that I worked with. Like I worked with Jack Benny and Loretta Young and Kirk Douglas, and I was directed by Cecil B. DeMille and George Stevens and Frank Capra. But as a child, you don't have the same concept of all that. So I never realized that. And it wasn't until I became an adult and then I realized, you know, how how fortunate I was but it took me to get older to appreciate because to me they were just, you know, nice people. I didn't know they were famous. I couldn't compute that in my mind, you know, I was working with. Oh, I understand that perfectly. I think everybody, when you're in the midst of doing stuff, you don't realize the ramifications or the things that you've gone through until after the fact and you can reflect. And then you start to realize all these positive things that have happened and, your life. And I think it's nice when people take that time to reflect back and because sometimes everybody dwells on the negatives, but there's so many positives that have also happened that sometimes people forget about. Absolutely. I know. I, I write a monthly column for a, a little magazine newspaper. It's a local paper for it. Uh, goes all over Las Vegas and Henderson to a lot of the senior communities and it's in some of the casinos and hotels and various places and my column is called Hollywood Memories. So each month I I get to write about somebody that I've worked with or one of my experiences and I've now been writing that column for almost twelve years, which I can't believe where the time goes. But it's been a lot of fun and like in my book it's my autobiography and I talk about all the experiences that I've had and what it was like growing up in Hollywood. My family was actually from Chicago, but when my sister, Audrey, uh, was sick as a child, they thought she might have polio. So fortunately, she didn't. But the doctors told my parents that they felt that she should be in a warmer climate because they were in Chicago. And my mother's sister, my Aunt Emma, was living in California. So because of my sister's health, they decided to move west and be in a warmer climate. And then I was born in California. So my two older sisters and my two older brothers were all born in Chicago. But when they moved to Los Angeles, that's where I was born. And sometimes fate does that where, um, you know, people move for various reasons and you end up where you're supposed to be. And one of the things, yeah. one of the things I want to ask you, movie you did, I'm a big Superman fan <laughs> and you were in Superman and the mole men. Do you have, any- I know I was a little girl where the little mole men climb in through the windows and we play ball with them. And then it's like radioactive or whatever. And it lights up. And I asked them if they're magic. So you saw that then Steven? Oh yes. I, I saw, I remember growing up watching the adventures of Superman on TV, <laughs> you know, in reruns and just to me, until Christopher Reeve came out, George Reeves, was Superman, and then it, it's like, okay, he, and when Christopher Reeve came out, there was like, I have my TV Superman, and I have my movie Superman. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It was such a thrill for me, because I was so young that, again, I didn't have any idea who George Reeves was, but of course I knew who Superman was, and 
although I was not in a scene with him, he was on the set in his Superman costume. And, of course, I was so young that I thought that he really was Superman. So that was the thrill for me to get to meet him, thinking that I had met Superman. And then, ironically, shortly after that, I got cast in a little TV show called Heart of Gold, and it was with Edmund Gwynn, who people will remember from It's a Wonderful Life, and Tommy Reddick, and I played brother and sister. Now, he was the little boy that uh, played Jeff on the TV series Lassie. Anyway, George Reeves was my father in that show. Well, I never put two and two together because I was too young, but the crew, just you know, kind of to tease him or rib him or whatever, they would refer to him as Superman. And I didn't understand that in my young mind. I was like, how how can he be Superman? Because he wasn't wearing the Superman costume. And so my mother told me, she said, well, he really is Superman, but he's just play acting to be your father on this TV show. So that's how she <laughs> explained it to me. So I was like, shoot, that's good to know. Because <laughs> I, I couldn't, you know, compute that. I was too young to figure it that out that there wasn't um, a real Superman and Tommy Reddick who played my brother who sadly has since passed away he's the one who told me that there was no Santa Claus and I was devastated <laughs> so I used to joke that I never forgave him for that but he was fun to work with and Edmund Gwen was wonderful and it was it was a, a really fun time it sounds like it and I, your mom, I got to give your mom so much credit for putting that out there. It's like, oh, he's, he's undercover. You know, it, it's it's quick quick thinking of a parent. <laughs> right, yeah. My mother was great. Yeah, I was very fortunate to have such supportive parents because they never made me do any of the roles or forced me or anything, but they were supportive if I wanted to do it as long as I was having fun, as long as I kept my grades up and as long as I did my chores. They said I could do it for as long as I wanted. And there was this one time when I was working on The Greatest Show on Earth with Cecil B. DeMille, was the director. And in that scene, Jimmy Stewart, who played the clown, comes up and talks to me. And we have a little bit of dialogue, and he gives me a, a balloon or something. And so we were on the set. It was supposed to be under the big top of the circus. So they had all these extras sitting in the you know, to fill up the bleachers. And we were doing our little scene, and all of a sudden, one of the mothers of the children that was an extra was standing in the back, and all of a sudden, she, she yells out, cut! And of course, everybody was like, what? And they turned around, and she said she didn't think that her little boy could be seen on camera. So she, she yelled out, cut, which is like unbelievable because that's the director's job and here it is Cecil B. DeMille one of the most iconic famous directors ever and the mother of this little boy yells cut and needless to say they quickly escorted sadly her little boy and the mother off the set so <laughs> there are many stories of what they call Hollywood stage mothers so my mother was always very well liked because she just kind of went with the flow and Stayed in the background, and but 
you're required as a minor to have an adult on the set with you, and you also have what's called a welfare worker, and they're actually school teachers from the Los Angeles Board of Education, and they're called welfare workers because their job, aside from you know having you do three hours of schooling on the set, is they're there for your, your welfare to make sure that you get an hour for lunch, that you get enough breaks, that they don't work you overtime, and, you know, on and on with all these rules. And they have the complete authority at any time to take a child off the set if the production company or cast or crew or anybody doesn't comply with the rules. So, um, you know, they're sent from... The uh, LA Board of Education, and then you have to have three hours of schooling each day on the set, and it has to be in at least twenty-minute increments. In other words, you can't be called into the school and just be there for five minutes and then be called to the set. You have to at least have twenty minutes of schooling at a time mm-hmm. until you finish your three hours of schooling during that day. So they look after the children. I just find it. Almost so weird that somebody would yell "cut" on a Cecil Bill, Cecil Bill DeMille, Cecil Bill DeMille movie. I'm just, I'm just flabbergasted. That she was just like, I know, isn't that just crazy? <laughs> I would, I mean, if I met, if I was ever to have met Cecil B. DeMille, I don't think I'd be able to say a word, let alone yell out of this movie <laughs> "cut." <laughs> no, it was pretty, pretty intense. I mean, I don't think that's ever happened before that I know of, but. Um... Looking back, that was almost comical, I mean, of all things to do. But it was sad, really, because, unfortunately, they made her leave and her son. So her little outburst didn't really help. But she was just concerned that her son wasn't seen on camera. So I've been an extra in a film before, and it's, it's my concern was not whether I was on camera or not. It was just having a fun experience. And for listeners wondering, I was an extra in Runaway Bride. So it was, it was, oh, were you? Oh, fun. Yeah, it was fun. And, and if you ever have a chance to be an extra, do it. It's a fun experience. It, it makes for a great day. <laughs> yeah, it is fun. It can be long hours and all that. But, you know, people think that it's degrading in some way or, oh, you're just an extra or whatever. But honestly, extras are a very important part of the film because without them, scenes wouldn't be believable. You have to have extras. And, I know there's been stories where extras haven't been treated really kindly. And uh, uh, when I worked on Murder, She Wrote, Angela Lansbury, now I wasn't there this day, but I heard this story and several people vouched for it. They said that um, on the first day of shooting, she did that series for many years, the craft service person, he's the person who sets up all the tables of food for everybody. And so he had two tables of food and one, it had everything, bagels and donuts and locks and uh, fruit and cereal and donuts and everything imaginable on this one table for the actors and the crew. Then the next table, all he had was water and donuts. And it said for extras. And as the story goes, they said on the first day of shooting that Angela Lansbury came out of her dressing room and she saw the two tables and she called the craft service guy over and she said, see that table? And he says, yes, ma'am. And 
she said, well, I'm going into my dressing room, and I'm not coming out until that second table looks the same as the first table. And so that was the story I was told. And then from then on, uh, whoever was on the set got the same treatment, and the extras were able to have the same food. I mean, it doesn't just because you're an extra doesn't mean you're any less important or less hungry or less deserving of having a nice breakfast or whatever it is that they're serving. And so all the people that worked with Angela Lansbury absolutely loved her because she stood up for them because otherwise the extras would only have donuts where if you have even one line, then you're considered a day player and then you're entitled to all the good food. And that's, she was so wonderful that she saw that happen and just said, no, I won't allow that. So everybody loved her. Oh, we, we love the murder she wrote, and that just makes me love Angela Lansbury even more. <laughs> yeah, isn't that a great story? I loved hearing that. It, it is a great story. And speaking of stories, in the movie Shame, you had a story, I think, with Alan Ladd where you were braver than he was. Well, that's a funny thing. Uh, yeah, I, I played one of the Lewis children, uh, Edgar Buchanan's daughter, and I worked on that movie for three months. We filmed some of it on the Paramount lot, but the majority of it was filmed in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So on our day off, we all went to the chairlift, you know, the ski lift to go up there. And it's just a chairlift that takes you up to the top of the mountain. There's no seat belt or anything. And, in fact, I have a picture of it in my book. And the chair behind me coming up next was Alan Ladd. And then when we got up to the top, he 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 panicked because we were up so high. And he said he wouldn't go back down in the chair. So they actually had to send a helicopter for him <laughs> to pick him up. And so the next day, you know, the crew were kind of teasing him. And they said, you know, because they kept talking about the fact that here's this brave, macho kind of guy that does all these macho things in the films and there's cowboy and all that. And he was too chicken to go down the chairlift. So one of the crew members said, well, little Beverly didn't have a problem. <laughs> well, at the time, I was mortified because I thought he would be upset or get mad at me or something that I... I was willing to go down, and he wasn't. But he just laughed. He took it all in stride and knew that they were just teasing him. But that was another story I have in my book because it it was just so odd because you don't expect that, <laughs> that they'd have to send a helicopter to take him back down the mountain. I mean, that, 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 when I read that, I thought that was, that was hilarious because I'm thinking, you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, because I know if that happened to me, I know I would be, ribbed of everybody I'm working with, you know, and, and, and you got to take, the, if you're going to joke on other people, you got to be willing to have jokes on you. You got to, you know, so yeah, exactly. And it's all in good exactly. fun. Right. Now there's one movie. I don't know if you get asked too often about, um, I watched recently. It was the, my first time seeing it. The juggler with, oh, produ- the juggler. that was yeah. awesome movie. I mean, it, it, that was a, a really good movie. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny because it, it, was, it was not a big box office hit, and yet it was uh, Kirk Douglas, and I, I really loved working with him. He was so kind to me. And then years later, as an adult, I did three episodes of Streets of San Francisco with Michael Douglas, 
So it was such a treat for me. I was so excited because by then I was in my, I guess it was mid to late 20s when I did that show. And I was able to tell Michael Douglas that I had worked with his father when I was eight years old. And he was very warm and welcoming um, to me on that show, as was Carl Malda. And it was really a fun time uh, doing those episodes. But The Juggler, um, I, I know they've shown it a few times, like on TCM and uh, various old, you know, nostalgic TV stations, but it, it never did big box office. Same with Here Comes the Groom that I did with Bing Crosby and Jane Wyman. And that movie won the Oscar that year for the best song, which was in the cool, cool, cool of the evening, written by uh, Hoagie Carmichael and Johnny Mercer. And the wardrobe person on the show was Edith Head, who was quite famous. And it was directed by Frank Capra, who was one of the biggest well-known directors ever. Mm-hmm. And the cast in Crosby, Jane Wyman, Franchot Tone. It had cameos by uh, Louis Armstrong and Cass Daly, Phil Harris, um, Frank Fontaine. Um, can't think of who else, but uh, oh, Dorothy L'Amour. And yet very few people have ever even heard of that movie. It never did big box office. Even though it was a Paramount film and directed by Frank Capra and had all those stars in it. But it's a film that, have you ever heard of it or have you ever seen it? Because most people have not. I have heard of it and mainly because of Frank Capra. Uh, mm-hmm. Because when you when you have a director of his notoriety, you know, you look up all of his things. And I have it on right. my, it's like one of those lists. As a movie lover, there's so many things, there's so many movies out there. <laughs> You try to yeah. see them all, but you never can get through them. Right, that's true. But uh, for some reason, that movie just never was really popular, even though it won the Oscar that year for the best song. But um, it's a very cute little movie, and I was thrilled to work with Bing Crosby. Again, I was too young to appreciate who he was, and I know, his. sadly, his sons wrote kind of a not-so-nice, book about him but you can only go by your own experiences and he was so kind to me and we wrapped uh, close to Christmas time so uh, Bing Crosby gave me a beautiful doll for Christmas and Jane Wyman gave me a beautiful dress for Christmas and it was just a really fun time for me and I worked on that movie for three months at Paramount and it was like a, a family but so many of those people have since passed away, you know, because, I mean, I'm just, on Thanksgiving, I just turned 78, and so I'm getting up there, and there's not a lot of us left. So many people have passed away, so, in fact, I'm sure a lot of your um, listeners and um, people have heard that Tommy Kirk, who played mm-hmm. Travis in Old Yeller, passed away this past September, and he lived here in Las Vegas, where I live, and we'd been friends for 65 years, and he would come over for dinner, because I'm alone, I'm a widow, and Tommy never married, and we were just really good friends, so he would come over for dinner, and we were scheduled next month, Um, well, when your listeners are listening to this show, I guess you said it's January, right, because we were supposed to... 
There's gonna, to, uh, this movie, this episode is going to come out either at the end of this year, December, or the very beginning of January. Oh, okay. Well, Tommy and I were scheduled to do an old Yeller reunion in January. And now, you know, he passed away in September unexpectedly. He had a heart attack. And I was devastated, needless to say. He was such a kind, gentle soul. And he loved his fans. He really did. And he had numerous fans. Whenever we would do a convention, people just embraced him. He was such a brilliant actor. And I miss him. You know, we were just such good friends. And sadly, I'm the only one left uh, from that whole movie, from Old Yeller. It's just me. And so now there'll never be an Old Yeller reunion because you can't have a reunion of one. And Tommy and I were scheduled to drive in together because he would never fly. He, he just didn't like flying. So since L.A. is only about five-hour drive from where we live, we were going to drive in together, and now obviously we can't. So it just kind of shows you how fragile life can be and how none of us are promised tomorrow, and that's why it's so important to be kind and you know live every day um, in a good, kind way, because we're not promised tomorrow. Exactly. And I'm so sorry for your loss with, with Tommy and, you. and your husband. And it's just, it's, it's, it's terrible. But, but it's the weird thing about Old Yeller is a movie that deals with loss. Right. And, the, and, and what happens after loss. And it's. Yeah, exactly, Stephen. Because I know, I don't know if they still do, but years ago, and they might still, I'm not sure. Uh, they would show that film in elementary school, and my feelings about it, I always said, I think it's a little bit too traumatic for children that are young, because when they see that, it's traumatizing. But Tommy, one day we were talking about it, and he, his philosophy said, well, that's true. However, he said, it is a lesson, because in life, it's not always a white picket fence. And things don't always go all our way. And life isn't always, you know, roses and flowers. We do have, you know, downtimes when we have to experience loss. So he felt that even though it's traumatic, he said he thought it was a good learning measure for children to realize that life goes on and you have that loss, but you can continue and then have a new memory. So, you know, he made a good point in that respect. I just, a bit, I, I've met grown men that say, I can't watch that movie. It's too, it's too scary. I'm not scary, but sad, you know, too. And it is, I mean, and that dog, he was a rescue dog and his real name was Spike. And he was a wonderful dog. And, you know, when they filmed Lassie and Rin Tin Tin, they had several collies and several German Shepherds that would be brought in, depending on what trick or what, you know, thing that they were required to do, which dog did it the best. But with Old Yeller, they only had one of him because they got him out of his shelter and trained him. So he did everything, and he was an incredible dog. And he was trained by the Weatherwax family, who uh, they have a book out that I, I wrote a little um, forward for them, it was. It's called Four Feet to Fame, and it's all about the Weatherwax family and how they trained 
so many of the animals. In fact, in March, I'm supposed to be uh, narrating a documentary about animal abuse in the beginning of Hollywood. It's heart-wrenching when you see these old westerns and all that, and you see, like with the cowboys and Indians, and then all the horses, you know, when they get shot, they fall over. And they said that there was a lot of abuse with animals in the beginning of filming, which is really sad. And then I I can't remember now because I haven't gotten my script yet if it's the ASPCA or the Humane Society who stepped in. And now, like, if you see movies or TV where there's an animal, you'll notice at the end it'll say no animals were harmed Mm -hmm. during film because they made sure of that because it was apparently not, not a good thing in the beginning with animals. So, thankfully, they stepped in with new rulings. So I'm happy to hear that. So the uh, documentary is going to be about that and how it's evolved. And it'll be uh, John Provost, who was Timmy on Lassie, will be interviewed, as well as Darby Hinton from Daniel Boone and um, uh, several others uh, that they'll be interviewing. And, of course, they wanted Tommy to be in it, but now he won't be able to. And so they've asked me also to do a little, I'll be narrating it, but then they want me to be on it to talk a little bit about Oziller because he was treated so well. I always joke about, well, his dressing room was bigger than mine. <laughs> and But they treated him so well. I mean, he had breaks and, you know, they always had fresh water and food and treats and all that. So um, it's come a long way, thankfully, with animals and, and show business and the industry. That movie is, as you brought up, my two older brothers refused to watch it again. They both saw it one time and they've never watched it since. And I I was that same way until my daughter, I think she was around five and we got old yeller. I don't know who got old yeller for her. And she wanted to watch, she wanted me to watch it with her. So, (laughs) so I did, I was like, you know, I'm going to watch with my daughter. I was like, she'll watch it once and we'll probably never see it again. I'm not kidding. That year that they got her to VHS tape of old yeller. We watched it over a hundred times together. (laughs) And she got me through that sad experience because old you're dying and realized that the movie, cause my told, I was talking to my brothers about this recently. I said, you know, the movie continues on after old yeller dies mm-hmm. for like, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. it goes on for quite a while afterwards and the puppies and the other things yeah. happen. And I said, it just shows you that loss happens, but that life continues and how, right. And I said, my daughter, in her own way, not knowingly, I guess, because she was so young, got me through and understood the real meaning of the movie. And I Aww, think that was, I'm so sweet. happy about that. That is so sweet. Your daughter sounds so precious. How sweet a thing to do that. Because, you know, I know I, for one, have had many losses in my life. I had two older sisters and two older brothers, and they have all passed away. I'm the only one left. And and my husband, of course, that was devastating. And, of course, my parents, nephew and um, nieces. And I've lost so many people. And it's one of the most devastating things that can happen in one's life. You know, losing anyone whom we love is one of the hardest things in life that we have to endure. And at times, you want to just say, I, I can't do this. I'm not strong enough. I can't. 
and and you look around and you see all these people living their life and you want the world just to stop and your life goes on and you have to just you know embrace that little hole in your heart and know that that will never go away that you'll always have that little hole when you miss somebody that you love but we have to move forward and enjoy what what we can you know what we have and every day that we're here is a blessing oh i I definitely agree and and i think that's the attitude that we all have to take and that in the movie i think sums it up so well and it's such a beautiful movie and for those that i'm telling this i'm saying this to my brothers and people that are like my brothers you saw it the one time please rewatch it (laughs) and and understand what the movie is really about and right. I know it, it is sad, and I, and I cry every time. I think it's because the movie is just so well done. But yeah. it's after that part, pay attention, and it's just that's the part that they're getting to. It's 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 really yeah. worth revisiting. Thank you. Yeah, I I I agree, Stephen, and I feel so fortunate to have been part of Old Yeller because it still lives on. I mean, that movie is like sixty five years old. And yet, I was told, I'm not sure about this, but I was told that it consistently is in the top 100 of rentals or sales of movies to be watched um, and for every year. And people seem to know, if they haven't seen it, at least most people have heard of it. And there's been cartoons made of it and jokes, and um, it's been you know, um, talked about in a couple of movies. And somebody told me on that TV show, Family Feud, that one of the questions one time was like, name the five saddest movies of all time. And they said, Old Yeller was number two. And I think number one, they said was Bambi. And then somebody said to me, it was so funny. They said, what's up with Walt Disney? Didn't he like animals or what? I mean, look at Old Yeller and Bambi and Dumbo. (laughs) And they go on and on. But, no, he was an animal lover, but he's just a good storyteller and um, wanting to get good films out. But, anyway, so I'm very happy to have been a part of Old Yeller. And I always have to laugh because one time I was doing some appearance and the moderator on stage introduced me to come up on stage and say a few words because they were going to show Old Yeller. And he said, and he was serious, it was really cute. He said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to bring up a little girl who is in classic, um, very well-known Walt Disney feature, Old Yellow. (laughs) (laughs) And I I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to correct him, but it was just pretty funny that he said Old Yellow. But (laughs) Well, once the movie started, everybody was going to (laughs) know. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that was pretty funny so well it could be his coping mechanism you know he just you know and, and every you know it's he knew what was coming he, yeah he wanted to be grammatically correct i guess i don't know <laughs> old yellow but we've laughed about that yeah i miss tommy and thank you for your condolences he was he was a dear friend and um but i'm grateful that he went quickly you know, so many people lost their lives to COVID, and Tommy was petrified of COVID. He really, he really was frightened of COVID. So I'm grateful that he didn't die that way; that he went quickly. 
Uh, it's just such a tremendous loss. In fact, he had a birthday just recently, December 10th. He would have turned 80. So, and our plan was we were going to, you know, have dinner together for his birthday to celebrate. So, again, you know, you just have to enjoy every day that we have. Oh, I agree. And I don't know how to transition into this next movie from this one, but I'm just going to go for it. You brought it up a little earlier. Spider Baby or the Maddest Story Ever Told? <laughs> yeah. That, how, how did you get involved you know, I, in this movie? <laughs> well, it, it was kind of a fluke, actually. Um, I was I was grocery shopping in a, a store in uh, L.A. where I lived called Ralph's Market. And every time I turned down this aisle, there was it seemed like this guy was kind of following me. And I... It, it seemed a little strange to me, and I thought, I, I hope he's safe. Well, he finally stopped me, and he said, I'm sorry. I just have to tell you, I'm I'm not stalking you. He said, I just wanted to make sure it's you. He said, you are an actress. Am I correct? And I said, yes. And he said, well, we're doing the film, and I think you would be right for the role. And he said, um, it's going to be called, at the time, it was going to be called The Cannibal Orgy. And I'm thinking, oops. This might not be good. And then he said, well, they're working on the title, but that could change, but it's going to be with Lon Chaney Jr. Well, as soon as he said that, I thought, wow, that would be cool, because I was a fan of his, of course. So he said, let me give you all the information and then have your agent contact them and set up um, an audition for you. And so then I thought, well, maybe it is legitimate, because he didn't say, you know, come up to my apartment and see my etchings and we'll talk about the film. <laughs> you know, so it seemed like, well, maybe it's legitimate because he didn't ask for my phone number or anything. He just gave me the information to give to my agent. So I thought, well, I don't know what this movie's about, but I'll, I'll, so I called my agent and he checked into it and he said, yeah, they're casting. So um, they want to see you in whatever day it was. And that's how I got um, on that audition, and I went in and and read for the part, and um, I I really wanted the part because I'd never done anything. It was quite a stretch from anything I had done, and plus the opportunity to work with Lon Chaney, I thought that would be amazing. So I was thrilled when I got that part, and uh, sadly, I'm sure everybody who has seen Spider Baby knows that. Jill Banner, who played the sister, who was just darling in the movie, she was. She and I hit it off right away. She was so sweet, and we had so much fun. Anyway, she was sadly killed in an automobile accident on Pacific Coast Highway not too long after the film. And then Sid Haig, who he had thousands, millions, maybe fans that from all over because he did a lot of Rob Zombie films mm-hmm. and. He was so dear, and he died not too long ago, and that was a a loss, a, a huge loss. And anybody who had the opportunity to meet Sid will testify to the fact that he was so fan-friendly. He absolutely adored his fans, and he never was one to just sign a photo and have them move along. He would always talk to them and make them feel important because, you know, fans, without fans, none of us would have any reason to be at any of the conventions or try to 
sell our stuff or show films or anything. So when people come up, I know they've come up to me and thank me for being there or thank me for being in a certain movie. And I'm always so touched by that. But I always feel that it should be the other way around, that it's, we're the ones that should be thanking all of you, all the fans and the people that come out to these conventions and watch our films and ask for autographs and things like that. So I just think without fans, we'd have no purpose. So I always want to thank everybody who does come to the conventions and has a kind word to say or sends fan mail or emails or whatever. So. Oh, I to, and you're so welcoming when I met you at monster bash, I met you a couple times and, uh, you were just so nice to everybody I and mean, not just me, but other people. And I think it's just like Thanks. you said, it's because you realize without the one, you don't have the other. And I think people just enjoy it that you're just, that you're having fun and then, and the fans are having fun. And I think that's always where it's really great. Yeah. Especially this, you know, past, you know, year and a half or so, it's just been so hard on so many people and just to be able to kind of breathe and, take a break and, and just have a good day and smile and have fun is so important because it's been such a tremendous loss of lives and jobs and on and on. And so hopefully things will turn around soon and we can get back to some sort of normalcy. Now, what was it like working with Lon Chaney? What was he like? You know, um, he was terrific. He was everything and more that you could ever hope for. I always kind of, you know, sum it up by saying he was like a gentle giant. He was just dear. And people knew um, it was well known that he was an alcoholic. And it was in his contract that every day he would have to take a little break and go to his trailer just to have a drink. But it never interfered with his performance or anything. He just needed that one drink, otherwise he would get the shakes. And so they agreed to let him do that because it wasn't it wasn't like he went on a binge. It was just he needed that drink because sadly he was an alcoholic. And but he was so dear. He was so lovable and kind. And the only sad thing is that he didn't live long enough to see Spider Baby come into its own because after the movie, it just kind of sat there and didn't do anything, and it took years. And then Quentin Tarantino was really instrumental in getting it out there because he he was a friend of Jack Hill's, and Jack was the writer and director, as you know. And he saw the film, and he loved it. So he got figured out some way to get it remastered because it was kind of grainy, you know, because it was so old. And um, they just kind of redid the whole mastering of the film to make it sharp and clear. And then he got it out there and now it's, it's global. It, it amazes me that I get fan mail from literally, I, I mean, I got one from Hong Kong and, um, you know, them from Germany and England and everywhere in the UK and Canada and it, it's everywhere. And it just, makes me so happy that people embrace it. It just makes me sad that Jill and, uh, well, Sid got to see the popularity of it because it's been popular now for a few years, but Lon Chaney never got to see how it's, 
embraced by so many people. So many people love it, and um, it makes me so happy when they come up to my table and tell me that they love Spider Baby because it's a very campy, out there mm-hmm. kind of crazy little film, but it was so much fun to be a part of it. I enjoyed every second of it. And obviously you must have liked working with the director, Jack Hill, because you did another film with him, Pit Stop. Yeah, and with Sid as well. It was called Pit Stop, and it starred uh, Sid Haig and uh, Brian Donlevy. And at the time, her name was Ellen McRae, who later became Helen uh, Ellen Burstyn, who is quite well-known and famous. But at the time, she was new, and she went by the name of Ellen McRae. And then my brother, George, was also in the film, and he did a wonderful job. And, yeah, Jack and I are still in touch, and he's he's a terrific guy. And, um, and then I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, some people have probably already heard this, but um, Jack and I were doing a little convention about Spider Baby, and they asked us to, afterward, to go up to the penthouse to do a little interview. I can't remember if it was for a podcast or a TV, local TV station or whatever it was. Well, we're sitting there on the sofa and they're talking to us about Spider Baby. So the moderator turns to Jack and he says, Jack, I got to ask you something. He said, that movie, it's a great movie, but it's so strange. It's just quirky and campy and it's out there and it's just like so bizarre. And he said, I'm just wondering like how... How did that film come about? Like, how did you sit down and have a film such as that come to you that you would sit and write about it? And so Jack says, well, I was smoking a lot of weed back then. (laughs) (laughs) It was was hilarious because he's in his 80s and nobody expected that to come out of his mouth. And then it's like, okay, well, that explains the movie now, right? (laughs) It all all fits. (laughs) Right. But I, but I enjoyed Pit Stop, and, and for listeners who haven't seen it, it's, it's, a, it's a good movie to see. And I was just happy that you got to work with your brother in a movie. I know. My brother and I were very, very close, and that was devastating when he died. Um, he had a heart attack, famous Tommy. And, um, yeah, it was devastating. He was such a good guy. We were so close, and I was also extremely close to my sister Audrey, who also died um, years ago, but I miss them all my whole family every day, but I know they would want me to not roll up in a ball and not function, so I carry them with me in my heart and thoughts and prayers every day. Now, there's two other things I wanted to talk to you about, because I know we're, we're running out of time. You are a singer. Everybody loves well, Saturday night but me. Okay, well, that's debatable. <laughs> I, I, I'm not really a singer. I could carry a tune, but I, it happened years ago when I was doing the Loretta Young show, and at the time, Shelley Fabre had a hit with Johnny Angel, and Paul Peterson had, you know, he had a hit with my dad, and then um, uh, I think that was the name of the record, My Dad. And then um, Patty Duke had a song out, and um, I think, I don't know, various child actors had. And so I was with William Morris, the agency at the time, and they called me and said, we've got a recording contract for you. And I said, 
really? And they said, well, you sing, right? And I said, well, not really. And they said, oh, well, can you carry a tune? And I said, well, I can carry a tune, but I'm not exactly a singer. And so they said, well, then it's no problem if you can carry a tune. And the next thing I knew, I was in the recording studio with a live orchestra. They had violins and the whole thing and uh, cut four sides. And um, that one came out, Everybody Loves Saturday Night But Me, and actually made the charts. And it was so much fun. But no, I'm not really a singer. That was back in the days of, like, all the echo chambers and the, but they called it bubblegum music. And um, it was really fun, but I, I would never consider myself an actual singer. So thank you for thinking I am. Well, let's put it this way. It was a hit record, so obviously there was people that enjoyed it and had fun with it. <laughs> Thank you. And I can't do an interview without you because people that are, that are tuning in, without asking you, I know you've been asked this a lot, but Star Trek, The Deadly Years, with the original crew, the, the, I, yeah. I, I love that episode. I'm, just like I watched The Adventures of, of Superman in reruns, I saw Star Trek, I think, Almost every school day, I'd come home, and it would always be on in a rerun of, of Star Trek. Yeah. It's just, just it's a wonderful series. What, what are your memories of the Deadly Years? Well, I, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the Star Trek fans, they are absolutely amazing. I mean, all the fans, because there's every genre. There's Western and horror and sci-fi and all that, but the Trekkies are just amazing i mean they know every character they know the dialogue they know the episode and it amazes me that people in fact i made the blooper reel too i didn't know i was on the (laughs) blooper reel but um i've done a lot of star trek well not a lot but a few star trek conventions and they're so welcoming and they remember it was the second season, it was uh, the episode The Deadly Years, as you know, and I was Lieutenant Arlene Galway, and I die, and I always say, but I wasn't even wearing red, and I died. <laughs> it's not fair. Um, but it was so much fun, but it was new. It was not even that popular yet, and so I, I believe that show was only on three seasons, and it was the fans with all their fan letters writing into the stations and the you know, the studio, that it was because of the fans that they brought it back. And so when I did it, I had no idea at the time that all these years later, it would go on to just be so iconic. And I feel so great. So, I mean, I just did the one episode, and yet the the fans, so many times, I you know, I I think, well, they probably won't remember me because I was, and they do. And it just, it astonishes me when, you know, I'll say, well, did you see the deadly years? And they'll laugh and go only 50 times, you know. <laughs> and it's just so cute. I just love the Star Trek fans. They're incredible. And it was really fun. And not in a million years would I have ever guessed when I did it that all these years later people would still love it and embrace it and it would still be going strong and um I think Star Trek, and then what about William Shatner recently? Was that, I mean, it was amazing at 90, he would go on that um, that rocket thing. That was amazing. But, I mean, who better than Captain Kirk to do that? I have to give him a lot of credit. Oh, I know. He actually went to space, or as close as he's ever going to get to it. So it's, it's, uh, it's Yeah, I know. Amazing. It's pretty amazing. 
anything. I mean, at 90, I, I, but, I mean, he was the perfect person to do it, that's for sure. Oh, I, so, I, yeah, I'm very grateful for my memories of Star Trek. And any memories of, um, of, of working with William Shatner or Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, any from the show? I mean, you're only in the one episode, but I didn't know if you have any right. thoughts about Well, them. they were all very warm and welcoming to me. They were all very nice. And then um, a few years later, um, I went on a little um, six-week tour with Nichelle Nichols and um, George and Walter and Jimmy Doohan. And it was called the Fab Four Plus One or the Fab Four Plus Guest or whatever it was. I was the plus one. And we toured every weekend. We'd go to a different city. And uh, so I got to know them better then because on the set, um, I wasn't really with them for long periods of time. You know, you just come in, you do your part. And I think I worked like three or four days on it, and that was it. So being, you know, on that little tour, it was so much fun that I got to, you know, be with all of them. Well, not all of them, but the four of them, and it was quite a fun experience. So That is amazing. And for listeners that are wondering, if you, if you want to get more information about Beverly Washburn, Real Tears, the Beverly Washburn story, take two is out there. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate that. And, um, uh, I would be happy to, um, sign any copies. If anybody buys it, they can email me. Um, and I can have it sent to them or whatever. Uh, it's, it's available. I know on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and it's my whole autobiography from, you know, how I first got started in the business and plus all about my family and my life, my ups and downs and and to where I am now. So I would be grateful if anybody would buy it. And I always give, a, you know, a, a good portion of it to the animal charity. So. And when I say real tears, it's R-E-E-L. And yeah, it's kind of a little play on words because I was always kind of known for being able to cry and they didn't have to put, you know, things in my eyes. I was able, they were real tears because I was able to cry. And so back in the day, you know, because I'm really old, we did film reels where now everything is digital, but uh, it was on a reel. So it was a little play on words, real tears, spelled R-E-E-L. So, and it's, it's real tears take two, like you mentioned, because there's a real tears, but real tears take two is the one that I would love people to buy. It's the updated version with um, more stories and lots more photos. So anyway, thank you for plugging that for me. I appreciate that. And to all the listeners, I know I've rambled on quite a bit, but for those of the people still listening, thank you so much. And thanks to you, Stephen. I so appreciate you having me on your show i'm honored really anytime anybody wants me to talk about my career i'm i do tend to ramble but i i have so many fond memories and i'm grateful to you that i'm allowed to share them oh i'm, I'm the one who's really grateful and, and you're welcome to be on the show anytime and i'm Thank looking you. forward to the documentary and when that does come out if you could email me and let me know and I love to I'll make sure that the yes. listeners know that the documentary is out or if you want to 
or if you want to help promote it when it comes out, we can have you on again to talk. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Oh, because I oh. think that story you talked about the documentary, that's something I'm, I'm really interested in seeing now. I didn't hear about it. I didn't know about it until you said it, and now I really want to see it, and hopefully it'll come out sometime in the near future, like in a year or two, you know, once they get done all the interviews. Oh, and yeah, stuff. I'll keep post on that. We're supposed to start filming in March. It all goes well with COVID and everything. Cross so, our fingers. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And um, you and your family stay safe. And thank you again. I'm honored to be on your show. And um, I hope to see you in person again. I'm looking forward to seeing you in June at the Monster Bash in Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah, I, I look forward to it as well. So thank you again, and I will see you in June. Thank you, and listeners, um, thank you for listening, and enjoy us next, join us next episode where either be a movie decided by a roll of a die or another interview. But otherwise, I hope everybody's having a good time and do something fun and safe. Where, where can you